The Second Mission Foundation is a nonprofit organization that exists to educate, elevate, and advocate for members of America's service community in order to help them find their second mission after government service. Second Mission Foundation was started by and for the members of America's service community. That means members of the armed forces, first responders, security contractors, etc. Second Mission Foundation provides these veterans the opportunity for them to tell their stories, reach their goals, and make their voices heard through educational outreach, entrepreneurship support, and community involvement. You may have already heard about one of Second Mission Foundation's most glowing successes, The Hill, a memoir of war in Helmand Province by Aaron Kirk. The Hill is an account of the tragedy of war, the deeply personal experience of combat, and the raw, unfiltered brutality of lower enlisted Marine Corps life. This book follows Aaron Kirk's odyssey from civilian to Marine and back again, focusing on his time as an infantry squad leader in Garmsir Helmand province during the height of the Afghanistan troop surge. For that and all things related to Second Mission Foundation, go to secondmissionfoundation.org. That's Second Mission Foundation, all one word, dot org, secondmissionfoundation.org. And I thank Second Mission Foundation for being a sponsor of this week's episode. As you guys know, Profiles in Havoc is a Havoc Journal podcast. The Havoc Journal seeks to serve as the voice of the veteran community through a focus on current affairs and articles of interest to the public in general and the veteran community in particular. Havoc Journal strives to offer timely, current, informative content. So go ahead. If you haven't in a while, surf the pages of Havoc Journal. Read the most articulate, opinionated, thoughtful, and provocative veteran writers writing about the nation, the world, politics, national security, culture, fitness, movies, list goes on and on and on. Havoc Journal's always expanding, always striving to improve the reader's experience. Check it out at HavocJournal.com. That's Havoc with a K, Journal.com, HavocJournal.com. Hey guys, um, it's been a long time since I've done a solo episode, so bear with me. Um, it's been also a really long time since I've done a podcast episode 10 days into COVID, so my uh, synapses are not fully firing um, as much as I'd like them to, so bear with me. Um, I will do the best I can. I actually am going to take a little uh with a little hat tip to joe rogan i'm gonna take my on it alpha brain right now not a plug not a paid commercial uh sponsor of this episode but i am gonna take my alpha brain and hopefully that'll improve <laughs> the quality of what you're about to hear bear with me um with the covid stuff mm, sorry that was my me gulping my pills down so Bear with me with the COVID stuff. Um, I, I, I think I'm mostly over the coughing and hacking, but if I'm not, uh, I apologize um, for the lack of superb audio quality um, that uh, I'll be bringing to this. So um, there's a couple of reasons why I want to do a solo episode. The first one is uh, I was flat on my ass. This is the second time I've had COVID. Uh, this time felt more acute than the first time. And I, uh, wow, I'm like out of breath. <laughs> that's not, that's not comforting. Um, uh, the first time I, I had it, uh, yeah, it didn't feel as acute. Um, this, this time really laid me on my ass for a good 72 hours. Um, and I really had to go on vocal rest after that um because my throat was just fucking tore up uh so kind of the, and then the work had compiled to the point uh that I, I had so much stuff to get through i just didn't have time to book a guest um for this which i should have and um and even for the savage wonder podcast i i had to push guests and i'll do all my mea culpas on that show because there are some guests that really got shafted by me uh getting covid so that that's 
the main reason that I don't have a guest on this particular episode. But the other one is that uh, this was this time of year is um, starting to be uh, kind of a really sad anniversary uh, for me. And I think for a lot of folks, and um, I kind of wanted to speak to that a little bit. Uh, There's also just some geopolitical points uh, I'd like to make. Um, We, we rebranded ourselves as profiles and havoc, as you guys know, at the beginning of this calendar year. And uh, so it's been a while since we've done just kind of out and out geopolitics uh, as opposed to talking about someone's personal story. But uh, this time of year kind of prompts a little bit of um, geopolitical navel gazing, I think. So let me dive into uh, the first emotion I want to mine, uh, which is anger <laughs> for myself. Uh, when I got COVID this go around, uh, that was the first thing that, that came up for me was just absolute rage. And um, this is a slight rehashing and a slight, uh, hopefully a somewhat new spin. Um, not not very new, but somewhat new spin, maybe with a couple of new data points, a couple of new elements to stuff I've said before on this show. Um, but the anger really came from uh, the very first thing I thought while I'm sitting there just tore up and coughing, hacking and, and just miserable shape. Uh, was um, a lack of anger towards Donald Trump or Joe Biden. (laughs) And by that, I mean, I had a lot of fucking anger towards the CCP. I had a lot of fucking anger towards that Chinese government. Um, And it just reminded me that with all the bullshit, with all the, you know, um, sometimes warranted, uh, you know, gnashing of teeth and renting of garments that we have in this country about our own internal politics. I think one of our biggest blind spots, one of our biggest solipsisms in this country is our inability to contextualize ourselves in the world and to understand how the world is impinging on us or how our problems stack up with those of the rest of the world. And in this case, um, with COVID, are uh, we are consumed you can if, if when i talk to people that are really passionate about covid it's always about health policy it's about well if fucking trump had done this or if fucking biden had done that um and it immediately gets into something uh very solipsistic in my mind um it's not those issues aren't important of course they are of course health policy is important of course you know uh how the education system processes mask mandates and things like that. Of course, that's important. But let's also never forget where the blame needs to be. And the blame, absolutely, hands down, without question, across the board, needs to rest at the feet of the CCP. Now, it's not the only guilty party. Uh, And we may never know all the guilty parties involved, but it is certainly the predominant one and the one that we have unambiguous evidence is the mustache twirling Bond villain in all this. And in this case, that's not hyperbole. They are mustache twirling villains. Let me walk through why that is, because, again, this is something I feel like um, has become a Trumpist talking point or something that gets mischaracterized as racist or you know something like that. Obviously, this is not about Chinese people. There's nobody that's been victimized more by the Chinese government than the Chinese people um, up until and including right now where you've got, I think, 70 different Chinese cities are in various COVID lockdowns with COVID right now uh, because COVID has reemerged there um, in, in new variants and, and potent variants. But the biggest, uh, well, let's let's walk through the clues before I kind of paint with too broad a brush. So, um, let me start this by saying what alarms me, and again, what fed my anger when I was lying there sick with COVID, was that um, how COVID started and exactly who is to blame for COVID and what the chain of events were, uh, the lack of urgency to solve that 
and the willingness to let that remain a mystery, let that evidence trail go cold is so strong. And there are so many people and entities that are invested in not solving that mystery. And we can speculate, speculate about their reasons. Um, I don't think speculation is wrong. I think let's just label it as speculation though, but it is alarming to me that no one wants to get to the bottom of this. Um, somebody brought up recently, I think, uh, the invaluable Jim Garrity uh, at National Review, who if you're not reading him, you really should. Uh, he has been phenomenal on on this issue, many others as well, but, but this issue uh, where, um, sorry, COVID brain kicking in, got to keep my thought with me. Um, Jim has been very clear um, on the point that we have all the evidence we need to know who's at fault, but the fact that no one wants to follow through with that, that if, say, for the example, the Republicans were to take back the House, and, and sometimes they've talked about doing investigations into the origins of COVID, they're not going to do that. They'll do Hunter Biden, and Hunter Biden might not be an insignificant story, but they're not going to get to the origins of COVID. The intelligence community has basically came back last year and said, well, could be a lab leak or could have jumped from a pangolin into a human even though there's no pangolins that have been detected with the virus and there's been no evidence of anyone uh, who's been affected from a pangolin transmission. So that was a real, um, you know, talk about punting. Uh, it was like the intelligence community, knowing where its bread gets buttered, did not want to make any sort of waves in its assessments, which is not helpful and is not, uh, is not the mission of the 17 intelligence agencies of the United States. Um, they need to grow a penis and make a fucking stand and actually say something. But obviously that there's, there's a lot of risk in that, that nobody wants to shoulder, especially when your career's on the line. So that isn't happening. Um, and that alarms me and that pissed me off. And when I was sick, lying in bed, that was my first thought is motherfucker. Nobody wants to get to the bottom of this. And we know it was China. We don't know. We don't have a smoking gun. We'll probably never get a smoking gun. It's been too long. That trail's gone dead, and you have a duplicitous, uh, mendacious, lying government in charge with a vested interest not for the truth never to get out. So, uh, and you have a lot of people in the West with vested interests to make sure that China doesn't end up with egg on its face. So, we're probably not going to get to the bottom of that. Um, but that just makes me angrier and angrier. Um, that this is one of those mysteries that will, you know, um, may very well never be solved, and and nobody gives a shit. Because uh, that's the only thing worse than not solving the mystery is the fact that no one really cares. And for a disease that has taken such a toll on the world, that's alarming. Now let's talk about. Um, so first, let me back up and talk about uh, why I do believe the lab leak theory is correct. I think any sensible person has to believe that the bulk of evidence circumstantial though it is um like all evidence in this case uh it has to lie with the lab leak theory um just so you, you know where i'm coming from uh so we know obviously about the sars outbreak in the early 2000s 2003 in 2012 researchers in china went to uh southern china to the bat caves where the sars virus originally uh well or originated they collected the back guano. They brought it up to Wuhan, which is about the distance from New York to New Orleans, uh, or I should say New Orleans to New York. It's that far away from the bat caves in uh, in southern China where the back guano was, was collected. But they brought it up to the Wuhan Institute of Virology um, and the other lab that, whose name escapes me right now that's in Wuhan. And they started to do testing on it. Nothing wrong with that. Everything right with that. Now, we're not sure why they started to do the testing. There's two, well, let's call it three reasons why they could have done testing. One is a very ben uh, uh, benign reason, which is to discover how the disease originated so that you can combat it. And then you can share that research with the world and everybody knows how to fight the SARS virus. Cool. 
Second reason would be the most uh, conspiratorial reason. Doesn't mean it's wrong, but just the most conspiratorial reason, which is to do uh, to weaponize it, to learn how to weaponize it. And the third theory would be uh, a bit of both. That yeah, they want to know how to cure it, and they also want to know how to exploit it and weaponize it. Um, we don't know why that happened. What we do know is that uh, gain of use, uh, gain of uh, Jesus, uh, uh, gain of function research. Man, my brain is really fucking fried. Um, you gain of function research uh, started to happen on the um, on the the samples that they were using and what that means is that they that the chinese were developing the absolute most malignant strains of the sars virus gain of function research is controversial it is not out of bounds in the scientific community but it is controversial because you are making something deadly more deadly but you're doing it so you can see what the worst capabilities are of that disease and therefore hopefully cure it now as i said there's a competing theory that says you could also therefore learn how to weaponize it and create this you know super virus but let's let's for the sake of argument stay with the most benign interpretation uh there are many scientists that protest gain of function research um but there are also advocates for it um i'm agnostic as to whether or not it's good or bad it scares the hell out of me when a government that has truly demonstrated its capacity for evil such as the chinese government starts doing it because you just don't know where their values lie um or you know where they lie and you're scared about what they're going to do with this knowledge but let's leave that aside for the time being the catch is it appears that the gain of function research was helped funded in part by the united states government now, the United States government, like any first world government, has a vested interest in learning how to deal with these types of diseases. So, again, doesn't make it wrong for trying to help out. And there is, you know, science is one of these areas where, you know, first world countries try to help each other out a little bit. Um, and we are sometimes very naive in dealing with China in that respect, but nonetheless, that was the nature of that interaction because official us government organs had helped fund gain of function research there's a vested interest on the part of the us government not to yeah, not to be super thrilled about revealing that and being uh you know and really advertising that a whole lot when suddenly the disease in this ultra mutated form this uh you know from the gain of function research is what ends up hitting the streets uh, as I said, that research started in 2012 in Wuhan. By October 2019, we have uh, you know NSA um, uh, information that came out and was public. <coughs> Fuck COVID. Um, we have that information that came out that uh, showed uh, cell phone signals getting shut down all around the Wuhan area in October 2019. Uh, more signs and indicators that the Chinese government was starting to shut down communication in that area. And that has led, you know, a lot of observers to speculate that that might be when the Chinese government first got hip, that something was loose and out there and killing people. Uh, obviously, the Chinese government continued to refute that the disease was out there. Um, the only, uh, sorry, the only point I want to go back on. Between 2019 and uh, 2012, or 2012 and 2019, uh, the WIV, the Wuhan Institute of Virology, suffered, um, like like both labs there in Wuhan, it suffered multiple uh, um, incidents of, uh, i trying to remember the exact word, uh, leakage, spillage, where um, there were major safety violations. These were level two and level four labs. Uh, obviously, the higher the number, the more secure the lab is supposed to be. But in both those cases, I forget what exactly the numbers are, but they're high. Um, it was it was many many instances. I want to say like nineteen a year, um, where somebody didn't lock something up, something was transported, some contaminated X Y Z made it out of the lab. So neither one had a very sterling record 
And, uh, and, and then in this case, you know, the, the samples, uh, I believe got out now the, the real, um, you know, conspiracy, conspiracy theorist types might like to say that, uh, the Chinese let it out, um, and weaponized it, pushed it out there. I, I don't particularly believe that's the case. I don't think that would make much sense because the Chinese would know right off the bat that they're harming their own people and that goes against their, you know, that that's not in their vested interest to harm their own people and, and put the legitimacy of the government's ability to control risk right on display. And the only thing the Chinese government fears more than, uh, you know, its enemies are its people. Um, they've got a lot of them and they're very worried about being overthrown by them. So, uh, and what revolution could do to them. So I don't believe that the Chinese purposely ever unleashed this whether or not they were intending to weaponize it um this was not i do not believe an incident where they where they intended to weaponize it so for whatever reason however this disease manages to make it out of the labs um and again we don't know how and we will probably never know how what we do know is that certain scientists started to speak out they were silenced some of them disappeared uh, the Chinese government consistently lied, and this is where, regardless of what theory you have as to how COVID started, um, the one thing that should be indisputable across the board to anybody that uh, can read the Associated Press or Reuters or any mainstream news reporting on this, the one thing that should be very clear is that the Chinese government for three to four months, depending on when you want to start the timeline, uh, consistently lied to the rest of the world that COVID even existed. And despite repeated requests for transparency, information sharing, medical surveillance, the Chinese government refused. And by the time the Chinese government shrugged and was like, eh, okay, yeah, this thing's the thing, uh, it was too late. And the virus had spread everywhere and everyone was in chaos. That goes well beyond, uh, you know, negligence. That 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 is that's China going. We're not gonna. We if we're gonna go, if we're gonna be disabled over this, we're gonna fucking make sure the rest of y'all are disabled. We're not we're not gonna swallow this pill just ourselves. And their gamble again, something that enrages me. Their gamble paid off because the rest of the world, instead of directing their collective ire against China decided to swallow it and go, okay, well, Hey, we're all going to work together and we're going to try to find out how this all happened. And, you know, uh, we're going to take these measures. And then it became a discussion about masks and vaccines and blah, 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 blah. And it just got away from who the fuck actually started this and why. Now the alternate theory um, about it coming from the wet markets has um has not been debunked because there's there's nothing really to bunk or debunk. Uh there's no evidence. Uh there's no evidence of this in the animals and there's no evidence that it made a jump. You don't have there, there's no infected pangolin or bat uh with this particular strain. And as I said up front, the bat caves where SARS the SARS virus originates are really far away from a Wuhan. So if a human being that was collecting samples in uh, down in the back caves got infected and, and was the start of, of COVID, then COVID would have originated, uh, whatever that is, 2,000 miles away from Wuhan. It wouldn't have originated in Wuhan unless you believe that that person in the south of China managed to travel all the way back to Wuhan without exposing or infecting anyone else which as we know from COVID's infection rates is a very uh, slim to no possibility. So, um, so as I say, bottom line, I think the, the, all the evidence in my mind steers towards a lab leak. And regardless of whether, of what theory you believe started uh, COVID, it is undoubted that the Chinese government through its negligence and 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 inaction for the first three to four months of the virus release uh exacerbated exploited that 
um, the the disease to the world's uh, to to its own benefit and to the to the damage of the rest of the world and purposefully. And that's inexcusable. Now, let's talk briefly about why. Let's speculate about why people may not want that to be explored and talked about and uh, why they don't want the mystery of the origins of COVID to be uh, uncovered. As you said, the United States helped fund the gain of function research in Wuhan. So we know there's a bit of a vested interest. Some of the loudest voices inside the America, the US government, uh, the guy, uh, Peter, forget his name, but he was the head of Eco Alliance that's inside the United States government. I mean, Eco Alliance had that contract to do gain of function research in Wuhan. Unsurprisingly, he was the most one of the most militant voices uh, decrying the lab leak theory and pushing journalists to not recognize it, call it conspiracy theorizing, all the rest of it. Um, he's been outed as a boob and a and a liar and um and what have you. And good. But obviously there was a vested interest there that he did not want this to get out and and influenced a lot of people, journalists and people inside government to also keep mum about it. There are certainly commercial business interests in not embarrassing China and uh, in shaming China. Uh, as we know, the NBA, NBC Universal, all these big uh, corporate conglomerates, you know, they aspire to do a lot of business in China. They are doing a lot of business in China. They need to do business in China. <clears throat> as a result, there's very little interest on their part to broadcast things that are going to be damaging uh, to China. Uh, obviously, uh, you know, with the Olympics and everything else, you know, again, there's a lot of money and and power at stake and people don't want to offend the Chinese government. So there's there's kind of a culture in the major, the people that have the bull, bull horns in our society are part of a culture that has a vested interest in not shaming China. Um, so there's that. Other reasons that this might not want to come to light. Uh, there are those who believe that by shining a light on China's inactions, actions and their inactions, um, it would point the finger directly at them for over, you know, for millions upon millions upon millions of deaths globally, not to mention all the economic damage that was caused. And these people, this collection of people, um, are very worried that that would lead to war, because how could it not? Because the damage China did in COVID is worse than World War II, Vietnam, Korean War put together, World War I. I mean, it's, you know, vast amounts of economic and uh, economic damage and lives lost. And they're scared that that would lead to war. And I'm, I'm empathetic to that argument. Um, you know. One of the signs of adulthood is the ability to handle complexity and nuance. And um, there is something, I believe, to the ethos that just because it's true doesn't mean it needs to necessarily be broadcast. However, this is a pretty big fucking egg to sit on. And this is one of those truths that um, that I believe, uh, you know, certainly we live in a time of a lot of demagogues. Um, people that can stir up passions and, uh, you know, get people to jump through hoops that maybe they shouldn't otherwise jump through, but do it through sheer charisma. And um, I get why there's a strong temptation on the part of certain folks, whether they're in the news media, whether they're in business, whether they're in the government, to go, you know, people aren't ready for the truth. We need to sit on this because... People are a little too crazy right now. And if we were to put this out there, this would um, this would lead to a lot of unreasonable actions that we would re deeply regret. I get that. Um, I get that reasoning. In this case, I disagree with it. Um, we hear almost every day in the papers about the possibility of civil war and about Americans, you know, hating each other and all this. Um, I do not 
need to manufacture a common enemy to unify Americans. Because in this case, it's just there. Uh, China is an overt enemy of the United States. Now, how you go about dealing with that enemy requires a bit of an adult discussion. War is something that I don't believe China or us want. However, just like any bar fight, you need to be prepared to do damage and to physically engage in order to have a peaceful discussion. If you come in with your palms up and completely helpless, that's not a position of strength that um, from which you can apply leverage in any sort of nego- negotiation. That said, it's undoubted that um, this is, if this situation, well, let me put it this way. If I was the Pope, if I, if I was the president, if I had complete unilateral power, I would say, yes, you, you need to not only release the truth, but then you need to marshal people's emotions and opinions in a way that globally China becomes isolated until it atones for this. Um, and that can lead to many things. I mean, this is hardly the only sin that China is currently in the midst of committing um, from the debt diplomacy it does throughout Africa, um, you know, the, the emergence of one belt, one road and all the tyrannical and um, selfish, I guess, uh, uh, decision-making that goes into that, as well as the Uyghur situation as well. You know, I mean, there's uh, tons of things we can pick on with China, Um, their aggression in the South China Sea, their aggression everywhere globally. Um, But this one particular issue is, but how to approach them and how to deal with China uh, is an adult discussion. We don't have adults, I believe, in a place to have that discussion right now. Um, we haven't for a while. I wish we did. Um, and I hope that the right thing happens eventually where the people, where Americans and, and people across the world can focus on the evils that China has committed, certainly with regard to COVID and um, place blame um, and exact a degree of retribution appropriately. And I use that term advisedly. Um, I don't want to make geopolitics sound like a John Wick movie, but um, there need to be consequences to China for its actions and inactions. Otherwise, uh, you know, China is just continuing to, you know, foot stomp its way across the globe economically um, and, and militarily and politically. And that's not good. And I think the amount of influence that China has inside the United States is also very dangerous. And uh, the more that Americans are wary of China and its intentions and anything to do with China, uh, the better and safer, not just America, but the world will be. Let me talk exactly uh, specifically about a couple of things. TikTok. Um, I hope everyone listening to this, we have a pretty savvy crowd that listens to this show. I hope you guys are aware and I hope you're a little evangelical in telling others not to be on TikTok. TikTok is an organ of the CCP. There's there's something I think Americans and, and maybe a lot of other people in the world have this perception that because a company is from a certain country. Well, they're just a company. I mean, they're not the government. There's a company. That's not true when it comes to China. There are very excruciatingly few companies that are Chinese that are not, do not have, um, that are not backed by the CCP or infiltrated thoroughly by the CCP. In fact, all the companies need to report and involve the CCP in some degree of their decision making. So, it's not like, oh, well, it's a Canadian company. That doesn't mean it's the Canadian government. Yeah, well, that's not that's not an apples to apples comparison when you're talking about Chinese companies. Chinese companies are in bed by definition with the CCP. They are an exponent of Chinese foreign policy and Chinese intelligence gathering. Um, and TikTok is that. So every time you're selfieing on TikTok, every time you're doing spinning the the those, uh, I don't know what the hell you call them, the filters where they say, hey, what celebrity do you look like? And they scan through there. They want pictures of your eyes. They want pictures of all that. That's all intelligence collection going back to China. 
Now, why? Well, the short answer is we don't know. The longer answer is there's a lot of reasons to, to be concerned. So I'm going to pause on the TikTok and social media stuff and shift to the DNA research. So do not do genetic testing. It is very fashionable right now to go find out what race you are because Americans, especially in their solipsism, believe that nothing is more important than your skin color, uh, which is a different discussion for a different day <laughs> and a different subject of insanity. But one of the many reasons that's wrong is because it then leads people to go try to find their racial bona fides by doing genetic testing. Do not do that. Many, if not all of them, have ties to the CCP. They are collecting your DNA. Again, much like the study of COVID, no one is entirely sure why. There are credible reports published in credible magazines like Foreign Policy. Uh, well, let me leave out some of the other ones. Very credible uh, publications that are that have talked about weapons that China is working on where they can actually kill somebody through their DNA so that they can poison something that will only specifically target one person. And that's because they have specific DNA for that person. Um, similarly, if they, the more DNA that they can collect, the more they can start to assess based on race, who is susceptible to what? What diseases are people susceptible based on this DNA characteristic and that DNA characteristic? That is incredibly harmful knowledge. And considering, again, to go back to COVID, what the Chinese government has done in the past to do gain-of-function research and to look at all the left and right limits of the possibilities of certain of these diseases, that should scare the living shit out of you. Um, it does me. Um, and this is, uh, I, I don't, I, I don't like to fear monger for the sake of fear mongering. Um, but there, there are certain things that you just can't fuck around with. Um, you know, it would have sounded very fear mongering to say that somebody with a razor blade could kill 3000 people, um, on a sunny day in New York city in 2001, but you know, inshallah, there you go. It happens. So this is stuff that uh, I, I think we have to be very, very savvy about. And I think there needs to be a prejudice against Chinese companies and everything that remotely touches the CCP, because that's how the CCP operates. Uh, the famous saying about the CCP and Chinese intelligence is that if a, uh, if, you know, if a Russian wants to know information about a beach, they send a guy with a pail and a shovel to a beach, and he shoves the shovel into the sand, digs up the sand, pours in the shovel, and stomps off. If the Chinese want to find out about the beach, they send a thousand people to the beach and have them each collect one grain of sand. It's just a different method of intelligence collection, and they use an awful lot of very supposedly benign front covers to do that. And when every company from mainland China has, you know, is, is riddled with influence from the CCP. It's very easy to do that. So this, um, you know, again, not about the Chinese people, unless they are, although there's issues with that as well, and I might as well cover that as well. So for Chinese citizens, when they leave mainland China and come back, they are um, debriefed. Sometimes they are given lists of things to take pictures of, to inquire about, to uh to come back and report on you know if you're a mainland china chinese person you don't really have a choice um so i i i you know i don't trust the average chinese tourist that i see in the united states because um you know by definition they are tasked out by the chinese government to do intelligence collection to get that one grain of sand on the beach they're not evil people um i mean i'm sure some are but you know, they're just like everybody else, but they do have a very twisted, evil government that is counting on them to do their dirty work. And people in the West need to be aware of that. That is a thing. So um, that is a long stem wonder. I've actually got myself out of breath. And that, again, is fuck the CCP, fuck COVID. But 
Uh, that I think sums up as best as I care to for the moment, my feelings about COVID. And um, I really, really, really resent being taken off the uh, playing field for a week or two here um, because of the CCP's negligence at best and overt malignancy at worst. Okay. I said up front that this time of year, August, September, is becoming a very sad anniversary for a lot of people, myself included. And I've really felt it myself. It's funny. They always, you know, I remember hearing, you know, veterans, well, everyone kills themselves more around the holidays. The holidays are very depressing for so many people for, for various reasons. I feel like this time of year is, um, is starting to be that is, is one of these times of year that really, um, pushes a lot of veterans buttons. And, um, and I get it that, you know, uh, obviously this is when we, you know, this time of year is the time of year of nine 11. It's the time of year of our Afghanistan withdrawal. It's the time of year of our evacuation efforts. Um, with you know, trying to get our Afghan allies out. Uh, and that's the, those are wounds that are still very fresh. And, um, as you guys know, I mean, 9-11 is something I, I personally live with every day. That was my first mass casualty incident um, that I ever witnessed or was a part of. And uh, I won't recount that whole story for this 9-11 show. Uh, but suffice to say, it's um, to, to now have to amplify that memory with um my time in Afghanistan, which came to an end at this time, uh, you know, um, mid-September, uh, two years ago, and then follow that up a year later with, you know, the Afghan evacuation withdrawal. Um, yeah, it's, it's hard. It's a lot. Um, trying to think of how much I want to get into this. Um, as you guys know, we've had um, two people on the show that have been deeply involved in various rescue efforts in Afghanistan. Scott Mann obviously founded Task Force Pineapple, uh, which you know Scott himself was personally involved in in a rescue, and um, obviously the organization he built has rescued um, you know uh, a decent amount of folks. I mean, and and. More than that, it's kept a lot of folks alive who otherwise would have died. Um, and then Tom Schumann, of course, has been on the show. And it's great to see Tom going around. I saw he just did Jocko's podcast. Um, he did ABC with George Stephanopoulos. His book's done very well. And and his rescue of his interpreters actually during this time last year that I even learned about Tom because of his success getting his guy out. and. Um, I was trying to get somebody out at the time, and and that's how I first came across Tom um, to sound him out and see if he could offer any assistance. Um, and then, of course, Tom's been on the show, and and those are both really sterling individuals that have done an awful lot uh, with the Afghan evacuation. I'm torn about how much I want to share about uh, some of this stuff. I am. Um, I just realized I'm actually. Here in my task force pineapple shirt, um, I, I, I'm very um, bittersweet about the uh, the evacuation efforts, um, not because of those that were involved in the evacuation efforts, um, whether on the Afghan side or on the American side or NATO, you know, former NATO side. Um, a, a lot of good people trying to do the absolute best they could. <laughs> the betrayal by the U.S. government of our Afghan allies, though, is stark. And forget about the betrayal of our Afghan allies itself for the time being. The betrayal of our service members that were helping our Afghan allies should cut even closer to home. Um, 
you know, I've talked, I think, on the show before about the cultural divide between people that were in Afghanistan after 2013 and those that were in Afghanistan before 2013 and the difference those those two, let's call them generations of, of Afghan war veterans feel about Afghans uh, is notable, uh, not hard and fast, but but it's, there does seem to be a little bit of a, a difference based off of um, what your interactions were with the Afghans while you were there. So I get that not every American veteran of Afghanistan gives a shit about uh, the people of Afghanistan or our former Afghan allies, those that were there later, such as myself, I think really uh, do more because we, we we had a different Afghan army that we were dealing with, different Afghan friends, different expectations and, and relationships that had developed at that point. What the U.S. government did in dropping the ball on these allies and not just creating a vacuum that volunteers, somewhat still on active duty in the military, some retired, but the, it wasn't just the vacuum that they rushed to fill that was so treacherous. It was that the U.S. government failed to offer an ounce of support to them and made them jump through hoops. The FBI showed up at Scott Mann's house. Scott just reported the other day that he went to a symposium in D.C. at Georgetown about how to help our Afghan allies now with the humanitarian process and all the rest. And there was not one single representative of the U.S. government at that symposium in D.C. That's ludicrous. Who was there is all these well-intentioned veterans, guys that gave up their families, went through divorces, lost money, lost jobs, were working around the clock, trying to fill and replicate the capabilities of a first world government while just being a volunteer working out of their home in their underwear. We talked to Paul Alcobi, of course, who was part of that. For my part, and I, I don't know if I've said this before on the show, this is how I felt. There was a Twilight Zone episode, obviously years ago, um, that I saw when I was a kid, uh, where the, uh, the lead character is this guy who's kind of crazy, or no, sorry, he's not the lead character, uh, but he's the main character. And he's like this guy, he lives in this basement in New York City, and he's running around just collecting odds and ends and these little bits and pieces of garbage and you know wire from over here and a bottle cap from over there. And I think it was like this woman that lived in his building is the main character, and she's kind of looking at him, and she's really worried about what he's up to and what kind of psycho he is. And she finally calls the police, and the police come, and they see him, and they see him like, peering in windows and breaking into windows to get certain random weird items. And the woman, um, finally the police come and hem the guy up. And the guy says, no, 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 you don't understand. If, if I don't, you got to let me free. If, if, if you don't, like all these things I've got, and they go into his apartment, his apartment's like littered. It's like a hoarder's nest. It's got like all these random, it's this collage of just crazy shit that he'd been stockpiling. And the cops are like, oh, dude, you're fried. Like, there's some cross wiring here. He's like, no, 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 you don't understand. If you don't let me do this stuff, bad things are going to happen throughout the world. And they're like, yeah, 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 whatever. And they take him to jail. And as they take him away, he misses the deadline for whatever it was he was trying to do and doesn't get like the bottle cap or something he needs. And sure enough, like on the radio or something, a voice comes over and it's like some volcano just erupted somewhere. And like he was the one running around saving the whole world because. He had these different assignments that he had to do uh, that like the universe had assigned to him or something. Again, it's a long time since I saw this episode, so I don't remember exactly how this all played out. But essentially, like he, he, there were the, all these different things he had to collect, and that's what kept the world together. That's how um, it felt to do shepherding. It was 24-7, nonstop, crazy-making. And when I say 24-7, I mean literally 24-7. Uh, I think it was... Uh, 
I think there was a two-week period at this time last year. I think this time last year, I was starting to get maybe two hours of sleep a night. But it had been, uh, yeah, about eight days that I hadn't had any sleep. And then, um, and then, you know, started to get maybe two hours of sleep a night. It was probably a month before I got a full night's sleep. Uh, and, um, you know, just strung out, like literally not able to do anything, not able to, to talk to anybody else. Um, it, it couldn't have been more stressful. It put an immense strain on everyone I knew. And, uh, it was a lot. There were people trying to pick my words carefully, but there were people that I worked with whose bank accounts were held up because they were trying to get money to people inside Afghanistan. Um, In some cases, this was incredibly debilitating to not just these individuals, but to their family members that needed um, their needed access to the bank account. Um, And all this could have been mitigated if the federal government had played a role to coordinate and help and, um, and, facilitate the actions of this ad hoc collection of veterans. Instead, the federal government, um, at some levels, I know Scott had good meetings with General Milley and and the Joint Chiefs, um, and I know at some levels there was a degree of um, affability. But the bottom line is the federal government um, did not give a shit. There was an intense or institutional malevolence against uh, Afghanistan. And I think it was born out of willful blindness. People in the American government, in the official channels, starting from the president, were done with Afghanistan. They were sick of it. They did not want it to be a story and nothing was going to let it be a story. Not the Abbey Gate explosions, not the 13 dead Marines, not all the other second and third order effects of letting the Taliban take the country back open. Nothing was going to stop our abject retreat. That to me is the most shameful thing. The veterans had already sacrificed. They'd already gone to war. That's why they were veterans. And then they sacrificed again on their own time on the home front to help out and the American government shat on them, shat on them, worked against them, turned them out, shut them off. At some point, I'm sure it'll become hip. And maybe right now it is hip to talk about Afghanistan and the rescue efforts and all that. It was grueling fucking work, thankless work and often unsuccessful work. Or let me rephrase that limited success. And the fact that the U.S. government was so obstinate, much like the president. I mean, it mirrors, you know, administration is going to mirror the president's tone. And in this case, um, Biden, when it comes to Afghanistan, um, and as longtime listeners of the show know, I'm an equal opportunity hater of the last two presidents. Um, But in, in this case, Biden's obstinate, stubborn stupid hatred of the Afghan people of the Afghan government. And he had a little cause with the Afghan government. I'll give him that. But how that manifested itself in a complete antipathy towards the Afghan military and um, almost a sociopathic hatred of anything to do with Afghanistan and a memory holding of Afghanistan as a country is one of the most negligent acts I've ever seen. And as I've said before, um, we'll pay a price for that. We've, we already know what happens when we take our eyes off Afghanistan. As those of you know, that, you know, we're listening to the show at this time last year. Um, I did not, I never, I believe we never should have left. I think it's a colossal mistake. I think we will be 
think that's just insanity to have given up, to have so easily surrendered that, which really in the grand scheme of things did not, was not costing us that much to maintain. We were down to a place where we were losing about 12 to 19 soldiers a year, which you hate to lose anybody. But in exchange, we had a piece of real estate that was adjacent to every single one of our geopolitical enemies, controlled a bunch of rare earths, had oversight. You know, we basically had an overwatch position on the drug trade. We had the ability to do immense damage to our enemies in the world, and we could scale up or scale down as needed. And everything was in place, and we'd spent 20 years getting there. And instead, with one naive, capricious, arbitrary move, we tore that all up. And if we were ever to go back there, we'd have to fucking jump into Bagram on top of Chinese soldiers that are there now, or contractors anyway. I'm sure there's some Chinese military presence, but it's a Chinese company that runs Bagram Airfield now. Not to mention fighting the Taliban and all that and starting from scratch. And who only, who God only knows what's going on over there. We're blind now. The last time we were blind, it was a less dangerous world, and they still got us in 2001. Now, I, I shudder to think of what's going on over there in the dark corners, somewhere down in Host or out in Nangahar or even out in Herat by the Iranian border. Okay, I'm officially bumming myself out. Um, that's a lot of heavy shit. But as I said, this is kind of a heavy time of year. And it's a time of year that I hope, I hope becomes an inflection point for the veteran community. I hope the veterans um, find sources of strength to rally around during this time. And I hope that we remember that we are the good guys. And that's why it was wrong to abandon Afghanistan. If we were just any other country, then maybe it wasn't wrong. But the American ideal can't withstand that kind of betrayal. Okay. Guys, uh, thank you for indulging me and letting me filibuster. Uh, this whole time, um, I, I have a feeling that this will probably be a tradition of having a late August, early September episode where I spout off about the latest developments in Afghanistan or uh, what's going on with our geopolitical enemies um, and make it a little bit more of a topical show than an interview show, at least for that one episode. So thanks for indulging me with that. I hope it was um, enlightening, informative. Uh, if not entertaining, um, hopefully not super redundant for those of you that may have heard some of these talking points before. Um, yeah. And as always, thanks for listening. And um, yeah, we'll be back with some badass guests uh, next week. So uh, stand by to stand by. Thanks, guys. Love you. Talk to you in bed. That was not my profile in Havoc, but um, we'll call it that for lack of a better uh, name for this week. I uh, hope you guys enjoyed that. Um, thank you for letting me get that off my chest at the bare minimum. Uh, obviously if you're on iTunes, we would love your five-star review. You can say whatever you want to us, but attaching it to five stars means a lot. Uh, we'll be back with an awesome guest next week. Uh, as I said, at the end of the show and I don't think, oh, well, I should mention our other episode sponsor, uh, since it's my nonprofit, uh, so at the top of the show, we talked about Second Mission Foundation and their very kind sponsorship of this episode. The other sponsor of this week's episode is Veterans Repertory Theater, which is, of course, my nonprofit. Veterans Repertory Theater exists as a platform for talented veterans to create compelling live theater and events. There is a ton of stuff going on at VetRep. So much stuff I cannot possibly encapsulate it here. Fortunately, we have a website, vetrep.org, V-E-T-R-E-P.org, vetrep.org. When you go there, you will see the Now Playing tab. It will list all of our current lines of effort. The biggest thing that you need to know is we exist to, I don't want to say retake the American theater, but we say 
re-energize the American theater by bringing veterans into the theater, especially as playwrights, um, not just to tell war stories, but to tell any stories of any genre, any subject matter that the veteran sees fit. We also have a whole bunch of other stuff going on. I won't get into all of that right now. Check out vetrep.org. You can hear, read, and see any and everything about what we do. So again, vetrep.org, V-E-T-R-E-P.org, vetrep.org. And I thank VetRep for helping to sponsor this episode. Okay, guys, I'll catch you next week. As always, my thanks to our producer, Mike Neal. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer. On behalf of myself, see you next time for another Profile in Havoc.